Okay. So before we get into uh, chapter one, um, just wanted to ask, were there any questions or any comments, or did you want to discuss anything further from the uh, last two classes from the introduction that we had? Any questions that were brought up or thoughts that you had? If not, um, before we get into chapter one, I want to bring up one thing that was um, in the preface of the book. Um, on page 15, turn to page 15 if you would. The very first paragraph on page 15 I thought was really good. And I want to take just a couple minutes and kind of discuss this, uh, what, what he says here and get your thoughts on it. One criticism of my first book was that it did not provide a specific procedural outline for carrying out discipline, and it is true that it did not. Those seeking a list of steps to be followed, other than those outlined in various New Testament texts, will again be disappointed, but for what I believe is a valid reason. I am persuaded that at least part of our difficulty with discipline has been that we have sought to carry it out according to a predetermined sequence of steps, rather than by prayerfully searching the scriptures and being guided by the principles it provides on a case-by-case -case basis. It was and continues to be my conviction, and the author's conviction, that the Bible offers no such lists because we are to deal with each situation and each person directly, lovingly, and as circumstances require, and not according to any manual or handbook. Amen. What are your thoughts? That's how it is in the classroom, that's how it is in parenting, that, that uh, discipline is necessary, it needs to be done lovingly, but there's not always a, you must do this first and then this, and it has to be a, a cookie cutter formula for every single Okay, <coughs> okay, all right. I guess I was immediately thinking of something that he started talking about in the second chapter about how we have a ten tendency to just take verses and isolate them and not look at the overall picture of what God's trying to teach us in, in, in love and respecting each other and right. the overall goal right. of holiness and keeping the church pure. Yeah. A lot of times we call that proof texting, don't we? Where you can pull out either a verse or a part of a verse and say, see, this proves my point, rather than looking at the whole context and what is the context and what is the principle and what is trying to be taught um, instead of just taking words and applying words to a particular um, thing you're trying to prove. Yeah. And he calls it a criticism of the book. And what it ultimately uh, yields is a criticism of the Bible. That if only, God, you had given me right. a list that I could always follow no matter what. But, I, you know, God... God has revealed himself to us and he He wants us to use that wisdom and the wisdom he gives us to to use it as we should. Right. Yeah, I can't help, couldn't help but think of, <clears throat> I don't know if those of you that were in the Galatians class last quarter down, downstairs, when we were comparing in the comparison of the Jews under the old law and Christians under the new law, is that really, you know, we tend to take that word law and we think that that means there's a series of exact things that we have to do, we have to follow, and we can't break, and we can't, you know, we don't count on God's grace. 
and uh, we don't we don't necessarily always look at the principles. We see, see well point 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 point, and if we do that with the where we are today, then we're no better off than what the Jews were back then because there's no way that we can be saved by point, 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 point because we can't keep those points perfectly. And so when he was talking about this idea of principles and the idea of, of um, uh, and we'll get into it more in another chapter, especially when we talk about fellowship and Tony really brought that up and how well we know each other and, and how we interact with each other. I think that we start to see how these things come into play. It doesn't mean that there aren't guidelines we have to follow, but as far as individual step one, step two, step three, step four, oh, we're getting to step five and it's totally over. No, we don't see that because each each case is individual, each person and personality is individual, and we deal with them on an individual basis. And It uh, reminds me of the wider um, complaint that people will sometimes have about the Bible in general or God in general. Why? isn't it just simple? Why didn't he just say, do this, you get in, do this, you don't. But um, Adam and Eve couldn't have had more simple instruction. And right. they blew it, and we've been doing it ever since. And that all misses what God has been wanting from the very beginning, which is a relationship with us. And relationships are not simple. And they're about principles, and they're about love, and how that's and holiness and knowing where your place is in relation to God and respecting that and honoring him and all these things that involve a lot of um, wisdom and application like you said and so that's what the whole Bible is about it's a story about a relationship that he wants with us and so and then that all gets applied in this absolutely absolutely it's no wonder that the Bible is full of parent-child discussions, whether it's physical parent-children or it's spiritual parent-child, right? I couldn't help but think when Anne was making that comment on shepherding a child's heart. That's what God wants. God wants our hearts. And I think sometimes we, if we're not careful in any situation, whether it's discipline, whether it's salvation, whether it's whatever, we want to say step, 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 when in reality it's he wants my heart, and if he has my heart, then what he is asking of me, I will do. And that's, I think that's that's really the focus. That's the focus in discipline too, right? He wants our hearts. He wants the church to be holy. And if he has our hearts, if he has our desire for, for each one of us and the church to be as holy as we can be because he is holy, then we will end up understanding and doing what God wants us to do in these unique and difficult situations. I think that's good. Any other comments on that that preface there? I just I just thought that was really good, and I thought it was, it was worth bringing up and worth talking about um, from that standpoint. So chapter one begins, why all the neglect? I want to read this intro. It's in old English, and it's very hard to understand, right? Very hard to understand. So. I'm going to read it, and then I want us to, because I looked at it in two different ways, and I'm still not sure exactly what he means in part of it, but uh, we're going to discuss this. This is by Nathaniel Marshall from 1718. Think about that. That's over 300 years ago, right? Discipline is a thing so little known to us, and that of the primitive church has hitherto lain involved in such a number of voluminous writers that the drawing it thence into a clear and open light would, I conceive, be a thing of much use and benefit. So that if I have performed this part well and faithfully, 
I am not without hope that I have done a good work. Whether I have so performed or not, the reader must judge for himself upon trial made of it. So discipline is a thing so little known to us, and that of the primitive church. This is where I struggle in the wording. And that of the primitive church has hitherto lain involved in such a number of voluminous writers. Is he saying that there's been a number of voluminous writers that have written on this in the past? Is that the way you, you read that? I, yeah, me too. But the idea, I think, is that in the past, in the primitive church it was written on, but, but in his era, in the 1700s, there hasn't been much written on it, right? Is that the way you understand it? Okay. Me, that's the way I took it anyway. Then he says that the drawing it thence into a clear and open light, in other words, opening this discussion, this idea back up again, back in the 1700s, early 1700s, I conceive, or he conceives, being a thing of much use and benefit. So in other words, it would be very beneficial if we can go back to the way the primitive church was doing things and think about this the way they were thinking about it, the way it was written about, and because there had been so much writing about it, obviously the way that they were engaged in it. That's the extrapolation I take it to. So that if I have performed this part well, in other words, if I am, as I write about this, if I do it well and, uh, and faithfully, I am not, he's not without hope that he's done a good work. And then it's up to the reader to try what he writes against the scripture to see if what he has written is correct, and if so, is there benefit to it. Is that kind of how you, anybody, anybody spend any time on that? It was so difficult for me. I had to read it about literally about eight or nine times before I thought, I think this is the direction he's going. Is it possible the primitive church is referring to the New Testament church? Receiving the instructions from the New Testament writers, it could very well be, and I yeah, that's that's where I, my thought was: how far back is he going when he says primitive church? Is he saying back to, you know, five hundred years before, or is he saying back to the first century? But when? he said it's a thing so little known to us. I mean, I think of the people of his day. Right. So now he's taken it upon himself to try to expand upon it in some sort of a. An essay or a book or whatever. He's right. Got here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To bring it to light again because it had been neglected. Bob. It, it seemed to me that when he was talking about the voluminous writers, that it almost had brought confusion into the topic. And that was the way I originally read it. Is you know, one guy had an idea, another guy had an idea. Not necessarily that it was scriptural based, but it was it was the writer's ideas and that ended up with confusion and, and hmm. okay. watered down maybe. Watered down, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Hmm. That's yeah, I hadn't thought about it in the in that in that way. That's that's interesting for me to think and about. He wanted to draw it back together yeah. and kind of bring it back to the point. Right, right. I will tell you, I thought about going and looking at this penitential discipline of the primitive church, trying to find that, and I thought, I had a hard enough time reading this one tiny paragraph, there's no way. There's no way. Is there a Google translator? (laughs) (laughs) Old English to modern English? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I just thought it was interesting. And there again, primitive, was it 500 years before him that he's talking about primitive? Was it first century church that he was talking about primitive? I don't know. I don't know. But I think the idea was, as far as I can understand it, I think the idea was he felt compelled 
to have a discourse and writing on church discipline as did Tommy South when he put this book together with the same thought process. I think that's why Tommy put this book together because of the same idea that Nathaniel Marshall had that that, um, it was so little known. In other words, it had fallen by the wayside. We talked about in the introduction that there are as many verses and scriptures on baptism as there are on discipline, but yet we demand and understand every point about baptism, but discipline is kind of this thing that either if it's done, is it done right? Maybe a lot of churches don't even do it because, and we'll talk about some of the reasons maybe a little later in the class. So that's kind of the idea or why I thought maybe he included this paragraph into um, the beginning of this section. Not that we need to understand exactly everything Nathaniel was saying, but that his reasoning that back in the 1700s, it seems like it had been kind of a forgotten thing to do. They weren't practicing it anymore, so he felt it important to bring it up again, as well as maybe that's why um, the writer of this book, Tommy uh, South, said, you know what, I see a problem here that we're not practicing. We, as, a, as the church as a whole, is not practicing discipline like it should, so I'm going to bring it up again. Just a quick Google search. Um, the full title is The Penitential Discipline of the Primitive Church for the First 400 Years After Christ. Okay. For the primitive church for the first 400 years. Okay. So it's for the f- centuries 1, 2, and 3, and 4 then. Okay. All right. So he's going back to 400 years immediately after Christ. Interesting. So that would be the, that would be the period immediately following, basically immediately following the apostles then, right? Yeah, you figure that um, depending on you know when you think certain books were written, but that most books were probably written in that no later than that 70 A.D. era, that time frame, and so that gives you 30 years until right. So the first century, second century, I don't know, but anyway, interesting. So maybe that kind of helps to answer that question. What does he mean by primitive church? All right. So I ask you to read this chapter and to bring up or pinpoint any either aha moments or points, discussion points from the chapter that you wanted to uh, that you wanted to bring up. So I'm going to open it up to the class right now, and we can either go in order through the chapter. So if you got something from the beginning of the chapter, or if we don't get much immediate discussion, I'll just open it up for. Yeah, I, like, I like to quote on page 19, um, about halfway down, it says, even such a brief overview effort, he mentions several verses that Paul uh, uh, mentions, sufficiently demonstrates that corrective discipline was part of everyday church life during its first century in existence. And so uh, the thought that it wasn't something that was shied away from, but it was actually you can see in their interactions, in Acts, and in uh, the go- uh, Gospels, in the Epistles, how conflicts arose, how sin was prevalent, and how it was addressed. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Bob? Okay. <clears throat> One thing I don't think he maybe addressed clearly is that discipline of almost any kind 
was always stressful and happy, even when it's carried out in a loving way, it doesn't make us happy. And so for that reason, I think we avoid unhappy things. We avoid making other people unhappy, we avoid making ourselves unhappy, and, but in the end, in the long term, we end up unhappier. Yeah. And Our world has pushed to, to not step on anybody else's. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. So real-world situation, not in church discipline, but in the workforce. Um, I just had to um, let a person go at work. Um, not because they weren't a phenomenal worker. They were a phenomenal worker. But because they stirred strife within the organization. And they'd been warned multiple times. And they just could not stop it. It was in their personality. Could not stop it. And so the decision was made we are going to lose a phenomenal worker that really knows what we do but the company as a whole is going to be better for it because the strife of everyone involved that strife level is going to dissipate and we're not going to have to walk on pins and needles around this person or we're not going to have to get frustrated every time he writes an email or sends a text because of the way he words it and so that was a very difficult situation it did not make me happy to have to do that it did not make him happy that he received that that um, that situation or that um, uh, decision. decision thank you that decision but it was the best for the company and I think discipline is that exact same way as you mentioned that it is not a happy thing to, to have to do not happy but yet it is also a something that we know that is best for that individual and best for the the organization in this case best for the church right where and we'll talk about different types of people that you know have to be disciplined but in, in my particular case if I extrapolated that out to the church it would have been a contentious person someone that was bringing up strife and causing problem contention within the organization yeah John and I, th I think that's in essence a part of what he's saying on page 18 in the second chapter where he says, no, the second paragraph. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, where he says, my view of church discipline is that it is God's gift to the church so that we might have healthier congregations. I'm convinced that God built discipline into the fabric of his church because it will make us stronger when practiced consistently and lovingly. So, your, your thing was kind of a an addition by subtraction. Right. Discipline shouldn't always involve a subtraction, but the ultimate goal is that you know you're made stronger. And what you described was a, a disciplinary process that didn't just start with subtraction. It, 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 it made efforts to try to improve and strengthen, but those initial efforts evidently didn't work. So you had to continue on. Right. That's true, Gary. I was just thinking of an example of what you were saying. Uh, when I was a younger Christian, I wasn't brought up as a Christian. I had to learn modesty, so on and so forth. When we were meeting with, when we first moved to New York, we were just worshiping with another family in their house. We were having study one night, and a brother who's an older, mature Christian from the South came. I came to study with shorts on, and he and his family were highly offended. I had no idea about this situation, so he pulled me aside after study and he brought me out on the porch and went up one side of me and down the other. And uh, 
I just responded. I said, I'm, I'm sorry, brother. I had no idea that this was an issue. He let out a big sigh and he said, oh, I'm so thankful that you responded the way you did because I was gearing up for an argument, for a fight. So he was distracted throughout the whole study. And then if he had avoided what he thought was going to be a conflict, then we would have been at odds and I would have never have known it. And I wouldn't have learned that there right. was, was such a thing that you know, be careful how you dress on right. Sunday night or Wednesday night. Right. Kind of thing. So by him doing that and my response, we became closer and I became more knowledgeable of issues in the church. Right. It's interesting, too, because the wording that you use, you said he went up one side of you and down the other. You know, Could there have been a maybe a little better approach that he could have made, though, too, right? Um, was it more of a... And, and there again, I don't want to get into want to get into the details, but I'm just curious with the way that you worded that was was it a situation where where his approach that I think that we need to consider as well, right? Not just what the offending person is doing, but those that are trying to approach them was his approach the proper approach um, as well. But ultimately, because of your response, because you had a heart for God, because of your response. It, it worked out no matter what his approach was and like you said you were able to draw closer that, that's awesome that's awesome but how many of us have been in his shoes where we feel like we need to approach a brother but we don't really want to because it's hard right we don't, we right. don't want to stir up the dust if you will right well, and that's, I mean, continue on page 18 that's the, this is um, the, the Matthew 18 15 through 17 scenario, right? kind of that way <clears throat> I'm going to throw something out to you because this is something that um, I have thought for a long time and then I've been doing a little study on it. If you consider Matthew 15 or 18, 15 through 17, well, let's just, let me just read that real quick. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. This is Jesus speaking. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So this is really interesting because... This is still in the section where Jesus has been talking crosses and unfortunately the disciples have been talking thrones. Right? They, who's greater? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? And so we find in, I think it's in chapter 17 maybe, um, when it starts, oh no, beginning of chapter 18. And at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus is addressing the disciples here. Most people believe these are the apostles and maybe a few others that are kind of following along with the apostles at the same time. Maybe some of the women um, that were ministering to Jesus periodically. Um, and so Jesus is addressing the apostles, the disciples here, and he brings up this idea of the church. We always, we always immediately say, here is the example that the church 
that we are to follow when we talk about addressing it to the church. My, my, it's not really an argument. My stand on this is that Jesus was addressing the disciples, the apostles, and when he says church, he's not referring in, in this case to the New Testament church. Because the New Testament church has not, had not been established yet. So the disciples and the apostles didn't even really understand this New Testament, what the, the, the church was going to be. But this word is the word ecclesia, the called out. Jesus called the apostles. He called them. He's talking to them specifically. And so if one of your brothers, if one of your disciples, if one of your close, close group here sins against you, you go to him. If he won't listen to you, you take one or two more with you, you go to him. If he won't even listen, then you tell the whole group. You tell the whole called out in this case. And then if he won't listen, then you need to treat him as. But saying that, I have to believe, number one, there are principles involved here that apply to the New Testament church. And when the New Testament church was established in Acts 2, I can't help but think that the apostles didn't immediately or didn't think about what Jesus had taught them on this subject when they had to deal with it. Ananias and Sapphira, other issues that came up that they had to deal with. We see, we see discipline, we see Paul addressing it as well. Obviously Paul was not involved in this at this point because he had not been converted yet. So just would like to get your thoughts in, on, on that. Um, there again, I don't have a problem using this in the discussion of church discipline because I think the principle that it brings up, as he mentioned in the preface, talking about principles, I think, think the principle applies. But where I, where I do have a little bit of an issue is saying, see, Christ said this is exactly how, you're to deal, how the church is supposed to deal with something, when in fact there was not the church yet. The kingdom was in still being established at this point. The only church, the only called out he's addressing here are his disciples whom he had called and they were, they were this group at this point that I think he's specifically addressing. Anybody agree or disagree with that? Or when that morphed right into the church when it was established as the called out? There again, like I said, I think the principles are definitely there. Absolutely. I think the principles are definitely there. And that's why I think the... Uh, the um, um, Paul even brings up something very similar to this when he talks about addressing those that have sinned and those that have erred and, and how you address those in, um, in several of his letters. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it definitely does. Well, uh, I apparently heard a sermon on this somewhere along the line because I have written down that this is the precedence for a local group. So, there again. Kind of what yeah, they're saying. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's specifically applied to... Man, we turned that up to 67 degrees. It's getting hot in here. I can't believe. I know. I'm going to have to open this door a little bit, all right? So, it specifically applies to, to the, the group that he's with. But I think the precedents, I think the principles, I think the application, once the church is established and the apostles go back and think about it and we see their their reaction and their instruction then uh, as far as discipline goes, I think that those principles definitely apply. On the stories before and after this instruction, uh, you have the hundred sheep and one is goes astray and you, you go to find it. And then after it, you know, the, the question is asked, how, how often do I have to forgive my brother? You know, up right. to seven times. 
And so this is couched within a, a, a relationship uh, set of texts and how important each individual is and how, how those relationships are, are to be managed and handled. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And then when the church is established, I think then they extrapolate these teachings to the church, which they're saying, oh, the, maybe the bigger picture he was talking about, not just about us, maybe the bigger picture Christ was talking about applies to the church as well as the church continues to grow. And I think that, yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. Robin. Um, in verse 17... For whatever reason, this time, that first phrase, if they refuse to listen, really stopped me in my reading because one thing that I, and I think it's our culture as well, is we don't know how to listen to someone when we're being um, corrected. You don't know how we're supposed to respond to that. Um, mostly, we're in our society taught to be self-defensive. And also, I think in our society, we have such a negative, negative perception of the person in whatever situation, whether at church or in our society, um, who is being accused of doing something wrong. I mean, we have no pity for them. <coughs> we have no understanding of how we're supposed to react to someone like that. And I think this, to me, this is big. If they refuse to listen, I'm not sure I know the right way to listen when someone approaches me in that way. You mentioned that you were very humble. And I think that, obviously, that, that was the right way to be. But I'm not sure that in most uh, situations in our society, in our world today, would that have been... You, you, he had the right to say that to you. Yeah. The first thing that happens is put up your defenses, right? Well, in my case, I was used to being reprimanded because I had a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be worth our while to spend time thinking about if someone approaches me in this way, what am I going to do? How am I going to react? What, am, what questions am I going to ask? I, I think that would be a good thing to learn how to do better. I think that's a great point. Do we seek discipline? No. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> um, but maybe we should. Yeah. I mean, the scripture tells us God disciplines those whom he loves, right? And if we're not disciplined, then we're like illegitimate children. And so, if God disciplines us, he expects us to listen. And is God disciplining us or me through just the scriptures or through someone else that is bringing something to me? And I think that's a great point, you know, uh, because, and I don't even know that it's it's a, necessarily a super bad thing that the first thing that you do is want to put up defenses and defend yourself. But if that's where you stay, that's the that's a major problem, I think. So I think it's just human nature to say, wait a minute, unless you know. If you know you've done something wrong and people are bringing it to your attention, that's different. But if you aren't convinced that what you've done is wrong and they bring something to you, the first thing you want to do is put up those defenses and defend yourself. And that's probably a natural thing to do. But 
we need to immediately, I think, or as quickly as possible, break those down and then contemplate and think about what was said. Is there merit? And is there something that I need to do? Anne? Um, I pray regularly for God to shape me, but am I really um, soft clay? Am I really uh, receptive to all the tools he's going to use, including people coming to me and saying, um, I see some changes that you need to make. I see some hardness in your heart, or I see some behavior that just doesn't um, mesh with Jesus. And I haven't always been ready for that. Yeah, yeah. That's tough. It's easy to say, but is it easy to really believe and, and accept, right? It's like when we pray all the time for patience. But <laughs> Be careful what you pray for, yeah, right? We don't want the trial that right. is um, necessary for that. That works patience. That's right. Yeah. Here. Uh, Dr. Steve Covey helped me out a lot. In one of the habits of seven highly... Seven habits of... Ses- yes, yeah. thank you. Anyway... <laughs> uh, What's that? Seven habits of highly effective people. He taught the principle of seek first to understand, then to be understood. And so it, it helps with the defenses. If, let me see if I understand what you're saying. And right. It, it helps to put a little bit of ease in that if you understand better what they're saying. Uh, I think of Peter, you know, he often got a bad rap for being impetuous. But when the uh, circumcision dilemma rose in Acts 15, it says in verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them. So Peter was sitting here quietly listening to this dispute go on for, for a while before he got up and he spoke. And good. That's just, just a good uh, habit. Of good habit, yeah. Through. That's good. Huh. Well, kind of more what Michael was do, at, at work, if I'm doing my job and I have coworkers that are, you know, mediocre or not doing their job, you know, I get frustrated with the, I might get frustrated with my supervisor because he's not doing anything about it. Would I be as frustrated if it wasn't going on here? I mean, if the discipline, you know, if I saw something did, and I didn't say anything or... I knew the elders knew about it, but they didn't do anything about it, you know, same, you know. Yeah, yeah. Would we have the same feelings, right? Would we have the same feelings, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's, I mean, those are, I think these are all legitimate things to to consider. And um, I really, really appreciated Robin's um, thought process because there again, usually when we think about discipline, we immediately go to the offender but in reality, it should be about how we approach that person or to consider, am I the offender and how would I react if I was approached? Um, I, I, would, I would venture to say, maybe not all, but I would venture to say most people in their Christian life have probably been approached by someone even if it's very minuscule or minor, it's like, or like I mean, even even a misunderstanding, right? There was something you said that I'm not sure that I agree with or that I understand. Um, can you explain it to me a little bit? Because you know, in other words, I don't want to tell you you're wrong until I know that I understand exactly what you said. What you said. 
um, or w how you acted or what you did. Kind of like the prodigal son, it's a good thing that the father got to him before the older brother. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He might have yeah. dro drove, drove him away. Drove him away or pounded him into the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we should have to do the peacemaker class before this class <laughs> because there's so much foundation oh, that gets yeah. laid in that study right. that would really yeah. get your head in the right yeah. place. For or maybe it should be a six-month class where we have Sundays is this and then Wednesdays is peacemaker and then Sundays is this and then Wednesdays is peacemaker. I don't know. It might be good too. Okay, so the title of the chapter obviously is, and I can't believe we only have ten minutes left, the title of the chapter is uh, Why All the Neglect... Um, so are there any other, you know, he starts getting into specifics, right? Page, bottom of page 19. Uh, clearly, I don't know all the answers to these questions, he says, but allow me to offer some suggestions. And the first one, I've just highlighted all of these, uh, one, two, three, four, and five, because I think they're worth, but there's one specifically that I definitely want to get to. So between one, two, three, and four, and five, and six, I guess there's six, um, anybody want to bring something up in any of those that you want to discuss a little bit further? I'm just curious. I had one key point that I put an asterisk by that I wanted to uh, wanted to talk about. I'll just say number five spoke to me. Okay. We're not convinced it will really help. Okay. And I liked I liked how he brought out the, the, the topic of fear and uh, motivation. Yeah. Yeah. When he said, "Are we replacing faith with fear?" Right. Fear that it will do more harm than good. If so, what does that mean? Go ahead, Gary. Oh, no, go ahead. Your, uh, I think, and then he goes on to say, if so, basically we are trusting human intellect over God's divine wisdom. <clears throat> if that's the case. If we're replacing faith with fear, fear that it won't do any good, then that's based on our own human intellect, not God's divine wisdom. And we're putting more trust in that than God's wisdom. There again, we've had many, much discussion. Will it do any good? And it's been brought up several times that I think is, is definitely correct, that is right, is that it doesn't matter. I don't like the wording of that because it does matter. But if the person that is being disciplined does not come back, does not, is not restored, does not return to God, does not correct themselves, that is not the, the only definition of success in discipline, right? <laughs> I keep going back to his main focus, and that is holiness. Our desire and effort to be holy as he is holy individually and as the church. And that is success if discipline is, is meted out properly. That is a success that we can't deny and ultimately, we can't control what the other people do, but I can control what I do. I can help to be an influence to control, um, not control, but to, to influence greatly the church so that we can be holy as God is holy, which is what he asks us to be. Keep the bride pure without spot. There you go. Yeah. You had another? Oh, I was just thinking uh, I had a hard time just picking one. I had put it into uh, three, three categories. The first one being, we, like Tony brought up, we suffer from a lack of genuine fellowship. I, I've witnessed that my entire uh, 
spiritual life. And then <coughs> number two was that we are so influenced by the world that it's crept into the church and, and hindered us from doing what we need to do. And then with uh, John there, the, the fifth one being my third one, all, all three of those together just uh, are major, major uh, problems. Yeah. That. Go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, like, like Gary said, if that first one, if your only interaction with a person is when you've messed up, um, it's hard to accept that they're doing it in a loving way. Uh, and uh, if a friend tells you, man, you really need to use some deodorant, that is different than the man on the street. <laughs> that you just have no relationship. Right. Right. I think that is such an understated idea, and that is this idea of how well we know each other, whether you want to call it fellowship, whether you want to call it, you know, friendship, whether you want to call it love. But the reason a parent is so effective with discipline if done right, if not done, um, if done as corrective discipline, is because the child knows there's love there from the parent. It's much more difficult to have effective discipline if the person being disciplined does not know that they are loved by you, me, the eldership, whatever. How well do we know each other? How well are we in the lives of each other? And it's difficult because people have to open the door to let us in sometimes. So we can't always control everything. But the, the, the harder we try, the more effort we put into it as far as getting to know so that we can love, so that we can nurture, so that we can discipline each other and I think that's I, I, I think that's really key you know yes when we think church discipline we think the ultimate discipline right but can we not just discipline each other without it even being necessarily you've done something wrong but as an encouragement this idea of discipline disciple comes from the same word right can I be an encouragement to you as a form of discipline to help you grow and in turn you do the same for me and so yes church discipline usually is thought of as something that is corrective but I think also we, we can't forget that there is this idea of encouragement and the more fellowship and the more we know and love each other the easier that will be because it will just happen as a natural form of our relationship like he said in the first paragraph there when he, he was at that lectureship about being the size of the church. Right. You know. Right. Here, I pretty sure know that John and Bob and Boyd know everyone here. You know, you see some of these churches on TV that are got huge audience. Thousands, right. Thousands of people. Right. Do the people running that church know everyone there? Right. They know what they're doing. I mean, and he said that, that he found by the raise of a hand that they didn't. The larger the church, the less discipline there was. 
because you it's it's much more difficult to know everybody yeah. right so that's the i mean there's advantages and disadvantages of of larger groups right, right. and i know i mean from a personal standpoint with within my family i know of a um, of uh, of Rissa's dad who was an elder and where they attended at one time they had gotten to you know 250 275 people and he literally said i do not know everyone because of the impossibility of really, with that many people, getting to have a personal relationship, as I think an elder probably should have, a, as much as possible, as close a personal relationship as they can with everybody. It becomes di- much more difficult the larger a group, a group gets. Anne? Um, it might be more difficult, but it's not impossible because the Jerusalem church was huge and there was no, never any instruction that they needed to break up or downsize or you know, they had the same instructions that the um, small outlying churches in the, you know, outreaches of the Roman Empire had. So God says there's a way to do it. You need to have enough elders. You need to have enough deacons. Um, it can. Oh, it yeah. It can and should be done. Right. So we can't say, you know, we can't just have negative thoughts about big churches. No, absolutely not. And that, it, you know, it can't. Yeah. yeah. That you can't be. You can't have fellowship in a big church. Right. Um, the first church was very big. And right. They had all the same responsibilities as fellowship. Just need more elders. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Okay, let me bring up one last point. Literally, give me 30 seconds, and then I'll let you go. Because the point that I wanted to get to is point number four as well. And that is, we fail to love as God loves, which goes along with everything that we've said. And then my point was, over there on top of page 23, by abstaining from discipline... We claim that we love better than God loves since God disciplines those whom he loves. Right? So if we don't discipline, we're saying, I, I can love better than God because God disciplines. No. If I'm not disciplining, then I'm not loving as much as God does because he does discipline those whom he loves, which I think is great. All right. Uh, we'll pick up and we'll, any final thoughts on chapter one on Wednesday night. Otherwise, we'll go to chapter two Wednesday night. So appreciate your thoughts. Appreciate your comments. Appreciate you, bro. Thank you.